Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains, mental health, and disabilities, and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same. Today, we're mixing things up a bit and talking with Catherine Pieper, the program director of the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. As the leading global think tank studying inclusion in media, the initiative examines the prevalence and portrayal of groups such as girls and women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, and mental health conditions. They analyze who is on screen and behind the camera across film, episodic, and short film content. As part of our conversation, we discuss the results of one of their latest studies, Inequality in 1600 Popular Films, examining portrayals of gender, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ+, and disability, and films from 2007 to 2022, as well as dive into the Inclusion Index and learn more about their new study on Indigenous representation in film. So yes, we are doing an episode on research. Sorry, everyone. I love you all, but this is now my favorite episode of all time, forevermore. And now, on with the interview. Kate, welcome to Brains. Thanks for having me. We like to start things off asking the most large question. Tell us about yourself and the work that you do. <laughs> Absolutely. So I am the program director at the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, which was started by Dr. Stacy L. Smith um, in the early 2000s. And so our work really is, is about um, measuring, tracking, and solving issues of inequality uh, in all forms of entertainment. So we put out research studies uh, based on film, streaming, television, as it were and is, you know, as it still exists. Um, the music industry, who works on screen, who works behind the camera. We've done work on film criticism. We've done economic studies. We've talked to people about the barriers and opportunities they face working in entertainment. And we're actively looking to solve um, the marginalization and inequality that still exists. Wow. We love, love you. <laughs> we love you so much. <laughs> no, no, I, I follow you actively on Twitter and everything you put. I was like, this is, I, I really am grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm so happy that you're here to talk to us about it. Um, so I'm going to dive right in. So you had a recent study, Inequality in 1600 Popular Films, examining portrayals of gender, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ plus, and disability from 2007 to 2022. Woo, that is a mouthful for a title. <laughs> a title yeah. It is one of your largest and most rigorous analysis of um, inclusion in film. So what were some of the most surprising findings of the study? Or maybe least surprising? <laughs> yeah, interesting. So we put out the study almost every year. We took a little hiatus during the, the pandemic, um, especially because the box office was a little different in those years, but we, we came back. And so now we have uh, 16 years of data. So it's a, it's a big longitudinal study that we put out. Um, and so it's hard to be surprised when the trends don't really seem to be changing, right? And maybe that's the thing that is surprising is that all of the advocacy and all of the activism, you know, in, in some places, we're still not seeing change. And, and those are things like the overall percentage of girls and women who are speaking characters in film that has not moved since 2007. You know, we're not seeing um, long-term significant, meaningful change. 
we did see progress for girls and women in leading roles. You know, we've seen some progress in those kind of marquee positions, you know, in front of the camera, still not seen a lot of change behind the camera. You know, there are places where we're just really, I think, surprising to see how much inertia there is. You have that progression, but has there been regression as well? Not, I think maybe for directors, the female directors or women directors, the numbers have gone up and then come back down slightly, um, but they never were very high to begin with. So it's hard to say, you know, we've reached a huge milestone. I think it's still under 15%. Maybe I'd have to look at the actual numbers. So, you know, a little bit of, of uh, kind of forward movement and then stepping back. But for characters with disabilities, it's never changed, right? I mean, it's still less than 2% on screen you know, tends to be white and male identified characters that we see with disabilities. We're not seeing a lot of progress um, for the LGBTQ plus community, you know, for, for people of color, we're not seeing overall changes for speaking characters. So it's almost like if there is progress, it's so hidden, you know, it's one or two films that aren't changing the overall stats that we're seeing. So which, which films actually did you find had the best proportional representation in your study? It's a good question and one I actually can't answer. Um, so we're always really interested in the aggregate and the landscape, right? And we're interested in those overall trends because we want to know what are people seeing across film slates, across what's at the theater, right? And people love to point to really exciting examples. Like we're all, you know, very excited about Barbie and, and all that it represents, but that's one movie. And so one movie isn't going to change the landscape, right? If 99 other films, you know, don't, actually participate in that change. I will say one place where we have really celebrated individual films is in our work um, with the Adobe Foundation on the inclusion list. And that's where where we've sort of said, okay, here are the films and here are the producers and here are the companies that are leading when it comes to inclusion. So that everyone who's listening knows what is the inclusion list? I know there's a scoring system, like how does that work? Yeah, so it's a website. Anyone can visit it, www.inclusionlist.org. We built it with uh, the support of the Adobe Foundation, and our goal was really to to celebrate what's going well. And so Dr. Stacey Smith, who founded the initiative, was, you know, really interested in a ranking tool or a, a list that celebrates who's doing well, but that's based on data. Because so many of the other lists of, you know, who's creating change or who's doing really well, it's sort of based on what people think or a little more subjective. And so we wanted to actually rank how well were folks doing in film based on um, what ended up being 10 on screen and 10 behind the camera indicators um, related to whether it was proportional representation on screen, uh, leading characters, um, folks across a number of unit head positions behind the scenes, thinking about both gender, race, ethnicity, and then of course, women of color, on screen metrics for disability representation and LGBTQ plus representation and age. And so that list, you know, we ended up with a hundred films that were on the inclusion list. And then we really listed the the top 10 with a little bit more information about kind of what those films were and when they premiered and the scores that they got. And it was just a really, I think, exciting way to celebrate both the filmmakers who were behind the, the movies um, that were doing well. And, and just to let audiences know, you know, these are the films that are, are representative. And it, quite frankly, became a celebration of women of color because that's who's leading the charge, right? That's who's directing these films. That's who's starring in these films. What we're seeing when it comes to inclusion on screen and behind the camera, that's who's leading. Yeah. So interesting because like 
the marking system being that it's like at least one girl or woman lead or at least one representation of that's a low bar too. like just one. If you could just have one. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) It seems like it should be higher. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I'm like, hey, grateful for the small movements, right? For you, if you can recall, like what are some of the films that did stand out that you had on this in the study? Yeah, I mean, for the inclusion list, I wasn't really surprised to see The Farewell uh, up at the top of the list. I thought that was a beautiful film, uh, you know, just really interesting and enjoyable and and such a neat, neat story to have told and to kind of experience theatrically. You know, to see The Woman King at the top of the list makes sense, right? Of course. I was really surprised in a good way to see Zola. It was number three. Mm-hmm. I was like, that came from a Twitter thread. This is awesome. Like... It- came out of nowhere. Just cool to see like different films that you may not expect. Like, of course that is. I think sometimes people think that, oh, it's going to be like a film that isn't really going to be popular or it's only going to be a certain genre and it's going to be very earnest. And you're like, no, that's not how it is. Like, <laughs> look at Barbie. Like, Look at Barbie, everyone. Finally, an example, making over a billion dollars. Right. And I love that there's the inclusion behind the scenes, like the crew. That to me is, I think, super important. Absolutely. And when then when you look at the producer list of who's doing well as a producer, you think you get a sense of how that then translates to the films that are celebrated, right? You have Jeremy Kleiner and Dee Dee Garner on the list, and they're making, you know, really compelling films like Minari, you know, and, and telling stories that that might be a little bit more at a lower price point, right? You have uh, coming maybe from a little less out, uh, outside of the studio system, but not entirely. You have Will Packer and James Lopez who are telling these studio films, comedies, you know, really uh, telling critical stories at a different kind of level of, of budget. And then you have Kevin Feige, right? Telling these big Marvel movies, right? So it's really, I think when you look at that producer list, you start to get a flavor of the, the idea that inclusion can happen at every price point, at every type of film. It's not, you know, only, you know, one kind of movie that can achieve kind of this moniker of being on the inclusion list, but really we have films from all across the spectrum. On the yeah. List. I love that. How does inclusion behind the camera in your mind impact what we see on screen? Yeah, I mean, we've looked at this, um, thinking particularly about women filmmakers, um, we've looked at this across, you know, several studies, and we like to kind of talk about it as kind of the the result of the work. But, you know, when you have a woman in the, the director's chair, right, you have more inclusion on screen, you have more women in, in leading roles and all roles. Um, we've demonstrated that across numerous studies, you tend to see more women in other key behind the camera roles. In some work that we've done, we've seen more racial and ethnic diversity on screen when you have a woman in that key position. So it really is, you know, an important component of, Mm. you know, changing what we see in the story is who is telling that story. Mm -hmm. As a person behind the screen, I'm a film and television editor. I noticed that, yeah, in the shows I work on with women directors, it is, there's a lot of women and diverse people that are on the crew. That's just my anecdote, like my experience. Yeah. It's amazing. Every study we do and we look at who's directing or who's creating, you know, if it's a, a series, you know, if it's a woman or it's a person of color, we see more inclusion on screen when it comes to speaking characters. Depending on what, if it's a film, like the director has so much power in it and that they can make choices. So I've, as a writer, I've written a lot of features, but that doesn't mean I have a choice in casting or a choice in the changes that are made. And even if I have like done my best to like write a diverse cast, it doesn't mean it's going to actually happen. So you're right. And it's good to see that the numbers back that up as well. Your report included an invisibility analysis. Can you tell us more about what that is and what the findings were? 
Yeah, this is this is one of the things that we do um, that, you know, Dr. Smith really was important to her. She sort of invented this and was like, we need to we need to do this. We need to use this metric. And so, you know, I think there's different ways for people to think about inclusion, right? So if we kind of present an overall point statistic, like 34.5% of all speaking characters in 2022 were girls and women, right? Well, that's helpful. It's across a hundred movies. You know, it's hard to kind of get a handle on what does it mean that only, you know, roughly a third of characters are girls and women. But if we start to think about at the film level, we start to think about girls and women of color in particular, um, and how many films are missing even one speaking character. And in our study, to get included at all, you have to speak one or more words, um, or you can be named, right? So we'd like to say this is a very low bar to get included. It's very much, you know, in line with the census. If you say one word or someone says, hey, Heather, hey, Sarah, and we see you on screen alive, you're in, right? It doesn't doesn't take more than that. <laughs> the key point uh, of alive, that's a... That's a, a lot, that's yeah, you need to be yeah. And so when we talk about invisibility, it means there was not even one character who was had had a word to say said hello said you know he went that way said hey heather hey sarah or was referred to by name so when we we think about you know we just did a paper on native american representation and 99 percent roughly of the 1600 films that we looked at had no native american girls or women you know in 16 years not one i mean in a good year there's two films that have have representation of one speaking character, right? I mean, we're talking 99, 98 films per year that have no representation. And and we see this with, you know, uh, usually it's right around two thirds of films have no Latinas, right? Um, somewhere between, I would say probably 30 to 50% aren't showing black girls and women on screen. Similar numbers for, for a- Asian women, right? And girls. This is, it's just about saying the, the world that we live in isn't represented on screen. Right. Um, and, and again, this is not about lead roles or even secondary supporting roles that counts, of course. And we, we want to see more of that. But this is about when you have a street scene in New York, you know, when you go see someone walk into a coffee shop. Right. From a casting perspective, these are the roles that fill out the world. Um, and we're, we're simply not seeing even a basic level of, of representation. So that's wow. why we do the invisibility analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Like just hearing those numbers, like, wow. And how simple it can be to just include people. Well, and it matters, right? People get health insurance. They want to work, right? I mean, we're talking about like employment opportunities. It's important for storytelling, of course, but it's important. And as we're seeing, right, for people's careers with the strike, like these are roles that matter for building a resume and, you know, continuing to have enough to live on. So it's not it's not only the power of representation for audiences, but it's also about people having the opportunity to to have a job. Yeah. Did you find that um, I know you said specifically women and girls of color, of color. Are there other groups that you find have that invisibility as well? Absolutely. We look at this for for um, girls and women who are LGBTQ plus and yeah, shown with disabilities in 2022. There were 72 films that did not have even one LGBTQ plus speaking character. So still almost three quarters of movies um, didn't didn't have one uh, LGBTQ plus character and half 54 of the films in 2022 were completely missing characters with disabilities. So we're still seeing a real we call this not just invisibility, but erasure of Mm -hmm. of folks from from these communities. 
So talking about characters with disabilities, you have already kind of alluded to (laughs) the study of that, but what were your findings and how are the numbers comparing to proportional representation of disabilities in the U.S.? Yeah, so in the U.S., um, it's it's roughly a quarter of the population who has a, a disability, right? And our friends at the One in Four uh, Coalition, who are doing a lot of work to support um, folks with disabilities and entertainment, you know, make that really clear. One in four, right? It's a it's an easy stat to remember. Um, and we pretty routinely find that somewhere in the neighborhood of two percent, right under two percent, just over two percent of speaking characters on screen in film. Are shown with a disability. Um, so when you think about the difference between you know twenty five percent and two percent, that's the that's the degree to which you know entertainment is missing the mark. Um, and then of course you have the question of are the characters who are shown with disabilities played by people with disabilities as well? So you know there's there's that component as well, which we don't measure. Um, it's, it's you know not not something that's included in the study, but I think it is a question that that should be asked. You know, yes. so. So I think routinely we're seeing a, a degree of underrepresentation when it comes to this community that continues to be troubling. Uh, these are folks who live in our, they're in our families, in our communities, in our jobs, right? Um, and and we're not not seeing those stories on screen. Yes, I have a disability, and I am appalled by the fact that there is, I think, zero point eight percent of writers who are in writers' rooms have disabilities or even part of guilds. And I'm like, this is bad. And it's usually representing very specific, as you alluded to earlier, representation of usually white males. And it's usually a lot of times it's around disabilities that aren't disabilities from birth. Um, They are ones that they receive later in life. And which is fine. We're all inevitably going to become disabled. We just don't really realize it. (laughs) So I'm like, hey, everyone. There's a real aging component that is missing as well. Yes, exactly. Kind of the intersection of these these, uh, two communities. Yeah. Was there a film in 2022 that actually had the right proportion (laughs) of just people with disability on screen? No, No. I'm looking at the data. (laughs) So if we do look at that proportional representation mark, um, which is in the, the the census cites it as 27%. And so we have a little bandwidth around it of films that, you know, are within a, a certain bandwidth of that 27%. And no films in 2022 were at proportional representation, one film in 2021. And I don't know which one it was at this yes. point, but yeah, wow. it's not, it's, it's not, proportional representation is not something that we see. In, no, in no, film. of course not. It's interesting. I'm working. I'm, this is a side note. I'm working on a series, but it's a docu series about a group of friends that all have disabilities, and so it's just like all my days are working with a cast of people who have disability, and it's just simp. It just seems like it. Just, uh, just do it. Just do it. Anyway. Yeah, I've been talking to directors that I know and say, why don't you cast someone with like who has diabetes who has a port? That's an easy representation of disability cast some of your smaller roles too as that cast your main roles but like there's lots of ways to include disability and it's about you realizing that as a person who has power in that moment um in terms of casting like you can cast minor roles and so you can make a difference in your episode and that's with specifically with television but also with film a hundred percent and i think the the other piece of it too is when we do see these roles cast and actors who have disabilities are are hired to play these parts it makes sets more accessible, right? Which in general is good for everyone. Uh, so, you know, the whole idea of universal design for accessibility is, you know, really important. And when we think about making sets or making casting, making auditions accessible, that actually opens the door, you know, 
both literally and figuratively for a lot of people to take part who might not be able to otherwise. And so there are some aspects of this that, that again, like with other aspects that we measure, go beyond just that representation component. It, it actually improves the workplace and the workspace um, beyond just what we see on screen. It can, can create an environment that's welcoming and that helps people feel like they belong. Are you also measuring disabilities behind the screen as well as on screen? We have not uh, done that. I think there's been one report that I know of, um, I think the Ruderman Foundation put that out a few years ago where they did look at some aspects, but it might have been actors. Um, So we have not been able to look at that. Um, I'm going to say, just from my experience and from being part part of organizations around disabilities, it feels like it's pretty minimal. (laughs) Yeah, we don't, we're not thinking that it's a huge number of people that we're missing. (laughs) Yeah, but still, we need to change that. We'll just say we need to change that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think folks at uh, different groups, the one in four, Coalition, the Inevitable Foundation, there's a lot of groups who are really working, I think, to ensure um, that there are more opportunities, there is more accessibility um, for folks uh, with disabilities to be part of of entertainment. Um, And we celebrate and support their work, you know, as we can. Well, you end your report saying business as usual cannot continue. At least it cannot continue if film hopes to showcase the multitude of diverse voices and perspectives that will and have captured the attention of audiences around the world. So what are the solutions for this change? Yeah, I mean, there's several, right? Uh, You know, there's, there's lots of different ways to think about this. And I think we typically take the perspective that you know, you need different solutions for different issues. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to smaller roles on screen, um, you know, Stacey, uh, Dr. Smith has advocated this idea of just add five, right? So if we just added five individual uh, female identified speaking characters or non-binary speaking characters per film per, for every 100 films in a year, we would set a new norm. You do it again the next year. And within four years, you're at gender parity for the first time ever. Right. And importantly, those roles shouldn't just go to women who look like they're from a particular community. Right. We can actually add five roles for women who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, who are women with disabilities, who are women of color. Right. And and in doing so, we actually then improve representation, you know, across a lot of different identity groups. It doesn't cost very much. It doesn't take jobs away from other actors. Right. So it's about adding um, not subtracting, uh, which is, I think, important to do. And so that's one thing just to change the demography of small roles, which hasn't moved, you know, those numbers are, are really stubborn and stuck. Um, when it comes to leading roles, we can talk about how people think about and make decisions around the perceived economic reality of, of releasing a film. And, and that tends to be more about who they can cast and who the star of a film is and who gets greenlit. Um, but thinking about that in particular ways, right? When it comes to directors, we talked uh, quite a bit, you know, a few years ago when we released some work around changing consideration lists. So all the consideration lists for directors or editors, right? Or cinematographers, how are you ensuring that those lists are actually populated with women and people of color that they're considered, you know, that they're interviewed, right? How do we change the the situation when those interviews happen to not prime stereotypes um, that might be harmful, you know? So all of these, I think, kind of get at different aspects of the, the business and create openings in different ways. So moving from, you know, film school pipelines into independent film, into studio film, right? There's different solutions that we offer kind of at every level. Um, but in general, I think people have to make a commitment to yeah. change. They have to measure and be accountable to that change. 
um, and they have to take the the actions that are needed to fulfill those. But being specific is is really, I think, the first part of mm-hmm. that. Oh. I like that five. Add five. Yes, that's such an easy step. Yeah, I'm slated to work on a feature coming up in the new year, and I'm like, like I just got the script. I'm like, oh, I gotta send this report to my director. What can you add? <laughs> add some stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like, oh, gosh, you know, how are we ever going to get there? But when you think about it, like, oh, five, you know, five roles, like we can do that. We're not talking about changing the whole story around. Right. These are characters within the universe that people interact with, just like we do every day. Right. I mean, we pass on the street, the checkout person at the grocery store. Right. There's all sorts of roles that people don't think about when they're populating a story um, that are actually really ripe for inclusion. Um, and again, offer work, offer that chance to be cast for folks who are trying to break into the industry and to move up and build a resume. Yeah. And think about who your leads are too. Like, is it also representational? Like, it, what is the, what world are we in here? I want to touch upon that, um, your most recent research that backs up your findings, read the correlation between on-screen inclusivity and the box office success and debunking who can lead a blockbuster. So mm. what did you find? <laughs> what did we find? Well, this is the third time um, for uh, Dr. Smith to do this study. I've been on board for a couple of them. And so this time we were interested in films from 2021 and 2022. We'd done previously a study of 1,200 movies from 2007 to 2018, similar findings, and a study of films from 2007. She had done, again, pretty similar and at the end of the day, we're, you know, the question we're really trying to answer is, you know, does the lead character, the identity of the lead character of a film make a difference for box office performance, right? And there's, you know, a lot of prevailing myths and ideas about what sells and who sells and under what conditions and all this. And we sort of want, we wanted to put that to the test, right? And not think about just, well, what's the identity of the lead and how much money does a film make? But also, what are the other factors that play a role in box office performance? And it won't be a surprise to you, right, that the relationships, the correlations between whether you have a male-identified and female-identified lead, they're very small. They're not significant. That's what we found in our most recent study. Um, For underrepresented uh, leads versus white leads, they're very small. They're not significant in terms of the influence that the identity lead has of the lead has on box office. And for women of color, for the first time, we could test this uh, mathematically because we had a sufficient sample size to do that. Again, women of color versus white male leads, kind of that critical test, very small, non-significant relationships, which says, you know, across the board, who you have in those leading roles isn't related statistically to box office performance. And instead, the things that are related, right, are how much money you put behind the film, how much, what's the budget size of the movie? How much are you spending to promote it? You know, marketing costs. And how many theaters are you putting it in? How many t- chances do audience members have to go see it, right? Or how many, what's the, you know, distribution density of a movie? Those things matter most. Those are all within the control of executives, right? Importantly, pe- people make decisions about these things. And then, you know, again, there are still differences in the nature of support across those three metrics, budget size, marketing, distribution density based on the identity of the lead. So films with white male identified leads are generally given, you know, more production, marketing, and a higher number of distribution density. We saw a little bit of fluctuation in those numbers across the sample between white and underrepresented male-led films. So there's some back and forth there. Um, So look at the study for the actual um, information. But again, it's really about support. And then the question becomes, if it's about the support, And if it's not about identity, then why are there still so many more films being made that star white male identified leads? 
And so that becomes a question, right? So now it's about decision making and yes. what are what's being greenlit and how are those movies being promoted, right? And so it takes it away from here's what we think is happening to how, how are people contributing to what's happening. So what can our listeners do to help make these changes? Some people listen are filmmakers and some people are audience members. I think let's start with uh, the filmmaker side, right? So if you're making a film, it's what you both just alluded to. How do you take a look at who you're writing into the film, who you're casting, right? Who you're working with behind the scenes. You know, a lot of times people have a crew and a set of folks that they really like to work with. They have a shared language, right? It's really easy to collaborate. And that's great. We, you know, we never want to take away from, it's, it's great to work with people that you like and who like you. How can you also expand that team and bring new folks into that that collaboration. Hear from voices that you don't normally hear from, right? Think about whether it's, you know, bringing in apprentices on the team, giving opportunities, you know, at the PA level to folks who want to move up. There are so many organizations who are working to kind of improve the pipeline into union and crew positions, right? How do you support that work? Um, And how do you find new collaborators who you know, have a different sensibility or maybe are from a group that's different than yours? And then how do you create a, an environment on set where you actually listen to those people, value their contributions and let them kind of bring that, you know, experience, expertise and insight to bear on the situation? Because that's part two, right? Hiring and then actually making people feel belong, like they belong. That's behind the camera. On screen, again, thinking about this idea of just add five, right? Just add five female identified characters, do your part, think about who you're casting, Think about the roles that you're writing, you know, early in the process to, to sort of say, okay, you know, does the plumber have to be a man, <laughs> right? Does the, does the judge, right? Who, who are people interacting with in the plot, right? Really thinking about that. That's where a lot of bias can creep in just because of who we're familiar with in the world. For audience members, you know, it's really interesting the, you know, there's pluses and minuses around social media, but the ability to be loud about the things that we care about right? Whether it's things that we love and want to see more of, right? Um, and support and elevate for the, the nature of the storytelling or things to say, you know, hey, this, this wasn't the best decision or what's going on here. Those both sides of that, that coin are available to audience members and people vote with their dollars. You know, making a billion dollars for Barbie is really important. Um, what are the next sets of films that, that need that level of support, you know, to really demonstrate there is an audience for great storytelling by filmmakers and about characters that we just don't see as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, great tips. I will do all I can to contribute. <laughs> are there any other new initiatives that you all are working on? Nothing I can think of right at the moment. We did just put out a study um, this week on native representation, which I think I talked about a little bit before. And so, you know, that's something that we, I think, want to make sure people are aware of because that is you know, the numbers there are are just at the floor when it comes to representation. So, you know, I think ensuring that people are aware of that is really important. Um, but otherwise, you know, we have we have stuff in the works, but nothing else I can, I think, talk about right now. That's great. We'll keep keep up to date with you. That's what we need. Yeah, to do. So yeah. that's exactly so where can people find you follow you as an organization? I mean, you can say where they can find you too, if you want, but like as an organization, how do they find you and um, keep up with all of the great research that you're doing. Yeah, I think we'll keep the address undisclosed, but uh, you can follow us on social <laughs> at Inclusionist with an S on Twitter and or X, what are we calling it now? Uh, and Instagram, um, we're there. And then you can visit our website. You can read all of our studies there. It's uh, annenberg.usc.edu slash AII. 
or you can find us at inclusionlist.org. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you deep diving into some of your research. This is just so important to us. I think having those numbers to back it up can help us make change when we are in a position of somewhat power where I can say, hey, actually, X, this is true because it's factual and kind of push against people's inherent beliefs. And having that tangible thing, like go to this, look at this list, look at this research. And like even talking to you today for myself, I'm an editor, I don't have as much power as an executive, but I do have sway into to suggesting things. And I think it's so important for us to all check our biases in every level that we're in in filmmaking to make those little adjustments, to have a, even if it's a voiceover, that is typically a man's voice, like f- voice it as a woman or someone with an accent, like change it up. Ugh. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, I guess I can close by saying once people realize that it can be done, right, then the fun begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then it's a question of how. So, right. It's not just, can we do it? It's how do we yes. do it? And if yeah. you start from that place, then I think it, it opens up some really fruitful conversations and opportunities that, you know, people often think are closed. Oh, you got me fired up. So I'm ready. I'm ready to send some emails. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to all the amazing research uh, to come. Thank you so much. <laughs> the amount of times that I said, wow, when we <laughs> talking to Catherine <laughs> and what no <laughs> I, I cut some of those out but holy yeah I love following them as a think tank and like looking at the great research they have going and I really like how they also say it as it is like we have been doing this study since 2007 and no one is making change and we have to change that mm-hmm. and so I'm hoping that they have been really out there. I know this year I've been seeing more than ever their studies in multiple publications. And I'm hoping the more that we can get them and that research seen and as individuals, anyone who's listening to this, use the research to help you create that inclusive space to make films in. So I'm just going to say like, these are resources for us as filmmakers. These are resources for us as film lovers and watchers and consumers. And let's use this. This is there for us to make change. And they can't just make change on their own. We have to take up the mantle and say, look, we know that it it can be different. Mm -hmm. So let's work together to make it that way. I agree. Let's do it. That's all I have to say about this. (laughs) As in like, everyone do better. (laughs) I second that. The motion has passed. (laughs) No, I'm just really glad that we could take this moment to take a dive into some numbers because what I love about being part of Brains is that we can talk to people about their lived experience. It's important to look at, well, how is this actually being applied and look at where we need to make a difference. And I definitely feel like the conversations we're having contribute to where people are not seeing themselves on screen. Yeah. And I and I really appreciated how it can be simple changes that we can make that can really like make a huge difference. Yes. Like adding the five characters. Don't take anything away. Just add some more, add some more, add some more (laughs) and keep adding more. (laughs) The add five was such a great point. I agree. Is there anything nice that you would like to, I do have a little thing I could talk about. I'm getting a tattoo this weekend. What? Mm -hmm. What is it going to be up on my wrist? And the reason I'm bringing this up is that it is something that I use with my daughter to talk about our days. 
And this came from our lovely friend, Jamie. Me and my daughter will talk about our rose. So I'm getting a rose tattoo on my wrist, which represents my, my daughter's middle name. So that's partly why I have the rose. But we do this thing where we talk about what, what's your bloom, which is the thing that made you happy that day. And then what's your thorn, which is the thing that made you feel mad or sad or bleh. And then what's your bud, which is something that you're looking forward to in the future. And then we added, so this is separate from what Jamie had told me about. We added, what is your stem? And that's like something funny that happened that day. And then sometimes I mix it up and say, what is your spine? Which then also makes us laugh. So it's got this like nice little meaning in our family and we have lots of fun with it. And then it'll be like, now it'll be a touch point on my arm where we can be like, hey, let's do our, let's do our rose today. We can point to the oh, I really like that. elements. Yeah. That makes me think of when you were talking about that. And that sounds really weird, but it was making me think of um, the comm strips. Have you seen ads for that yes. at all? Yeah. Like it's like a sticker that you can put on, let's say like your computer and it has texture, I think. And I had, I've never tried it, but the idea of like, cause with anxiety, grounding yourself in senses and then having that thing. So I felt like when you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, that's like, could be your comm strip, but it's permanent. Yeah. Which is, I do permanently need <laughs> comm strip. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm really excited. The tattoo is also going in a place where I have, I had broke both my wrists at one point. And so I had surgery and I have a scar on my wrist. It looks like thorn. Yeah, it looks like a stem. Exactly. So that's where the stem's going to go. And there's like little lines because of the stitches. So so I'm, so she's. I sent her a picture of my scar to kind of incorporate that into the design of the tattoo. So that's I haven't really got cool. the initial like drawing yet. I'm supposed to get that in the next couple of days. So I'm just like very excited. I will say um, I'm very excited about something too. What's that? My therapist has returned. <gasps> Yay! And uh, I don't, I'm not going to say her business, but she was away for a bit for... yeah reasons yeah. and then his she's now back and has been slowly adding different workload in and so someone went from once a week to once every two weeks so I now have the other slot Yay! basically through working with the, this therapist specifically we really focused on it was the first person who really like listened to me and helped with my diagnosis of my ADHD and kind of helped put me on a path that would I'd be able to understand myself better. And so what we d discussed was like, for me, this is a time now I can go even deeper and look at things that I'm like, well, how do I deal with this thing now that I know about mm -hmm. how my brain works? How do I deal with like, when I'm really stressed and worried about money and being poor and never having a job, how do I not just let that seep out of my mouth whenever I talk to any person? Because I would love to be able to stop that specific type of um, spontaneity <laughs> that comes with ADHD. It will give me an opportunity to say, hey, these are some things that I feel like are getting better and things that I want to work on. And so one of our meeting is meeting. Our <laughs> appointment oh is next week. It's a meeting. Or a meeting. Yeah. Is next week. And so I'm going to want to take time this weekend to sit down and make a list of things that I have worked on that I am working on and things that I've just like... <laughs> disregarded but I need to do <laughs> like oh preparing for sleep and I'm like screw that I'm just gonna read until two and then no don't do that and so um, I think being really honest about it is really important and I feel like it's someone that I trust and when they went away for some time and said that they'd be gone for a year or so I just didn't want to go to someone else because I think one of the things she said is like you can go to someone else you can wait for me or you know whatever you want like I may not return. And if I do return, you're on my list. But she said, I can understand it being difficult to want, have to 
talk about traumatic incidences in your life that a therapist would need to know, understand to some capacity, whether it's just the emotions or actual events. And it can be hard to have to redo that all the time. And so I really valued being told that and thought, you know, I want to, I think I have the tools to be able to do this at the moment, but now I feel like, okay, I'm at a place where I just want to continue to work on myself in a proactive and preventative way. Totally. Yeah. I feel you. And it's, it's really nice to have somebody. I was just reflecting on my relationship with my therapist and how I've never done every two weeks. That's never been a thing I've done with a therapist. I've always done whenever I'm kind of in crisis, I'll go to a therapist. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it was a year in July that I had been seeing my therapist every two weeks. And it's been huge, the things that I've learned and discovered and figured out with my anxiety that I just wouldn't have been able to. And I'm lucky that I was able to do that. And it's been, yeah, yeah, it's important. So find the thing that works for you, everyone. Mm-hmm. And also make a change in an entire industry. If everyone could do that. <laughs> yeah. But not just one, you. multiple industries. It's actually a lot of industries that are all, all the industries having these problems, like advertising, film, music, you know, let's, let's just tackle it all, everyone. Mm-hmm. Go forth. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap this up then. Uh, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor, mixed and mastered by Tony Bao, and our theme song is by our little brother, Depish. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on all social platforms at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye. Bye.